It was really difficult to be a Christian in the first century. For starters, because it was a new faith, it was a new religion. And so these people were pioneers in the midst of a faith, in the midst of this faith in Jesus that the world was unfamiliar with. And so they certainly felt like strangers. They felt like outcasts. They felt like they were out of place. But on the other hand, and much more seriously, they were being persecuted. Wave after wave of persecution against these early Christians, sometimes coming from the Jewish religious leaders, sometimes coming from the Roman government, sometimes coming from the people that they loved and the people that were close to them. They were living in a very difficult time, in a very difficult circumstance, and a lot of them were hurting, and a lot of them were suffering. And that's the climate that Peter writes his letter that we now call First Peter. He writes it to people who were in exile all over the region, to Christians from all different places, to give them an encouragement and a hope in Jesus Christ. But even in the midst of those circumstances, when Peter starts his letter, the first chunk of this passage talks about hope, it talks about faith, and it talks about joy. But this isn't something unique to Peter. We see that with Paul as well when he writes to the church at Philippi, probably from a Roman prison himself, writing to a group of Christians who were in the midst of persecution, telling them to rejoice always, and again I say rejoice. Or James writing to Christians, telling them to count it joy when they encounter trials of various kinds. And so how could these apostles, how could these writers of the New Testament, how could they even say such things, let alone live them out? The answer is pretty simple. They believed the gospel. They were Christians. They were followers of Christ. And so they knew that their hope in Christ was far greater and far more incredible than any suffering and any difficulties that they could ever possibly endure. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at this idea of freedom. We've talked through Galatians 5 as Paul reminds us that if you're in Christ, then you've been set free. That you're no longer under this bondage of slavery and captivity to the sin or to the law. And as Paul continues in that passage, he starts talking about the fruit of the Spirit that are evidences of our freedom. And last week we looked at love and how love sets us free to live as Christ lives and to reflect the love and the mercy and the grace that God has given us. And today we're going to talk about joy and how as followers of Christ, if we have been set free by Jesus, we have a calling to live lives that are filled and overwhelmed by joy. And so I want to read Galatians 5, 22 and 23, just so we have that anchor there. But then we're going to read 1 Peter, verses 3 through 9. So Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And now 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. May God add his blessing and favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we thank you that we get to come here and celebrate this Advent season because it reminds us of the hope that we have in you. May God, sometimes it's hard to reflect that hope because our circumstances can be so overwhelming. Life can be hard, life can be painful, and sometimes we suffer. But God, we thank you that you've given us the gift of joy, the fruit of joy that doesn't come from our circumstances, that doesn't come from the things that are familiar to us, but it's born out of you, out of your grace and out of your mercy. And so this morning, teach us to be people who are filled with inexpressible joy because we serve a God who is so good and so kind and so gracious and the hope that we have in Jesus is far beyond what we could ever imagine or comprehend. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. The first thing we see in this passage is that joy is rooted in our knowledge of the gospel. Joy is rooted in our knowledge of the gospel. I've always paid attention to advertising. I like print advertising. I like the pictures and the images. When a commercial is good, it grabs our attention. If it's funny, we talk about it a long time. So I've noticed advertising, but I've never really understood the depth of the purpose of advertising until I had a kid. Because I know what advertising is for. I know the reasoning behind it. But it's not until you sit down and watch a cartoon with your three-year-old that you really understand the depth of what advertising is all about. Because watching a TV show with Josie during the commercial break over about three and a half to four minutes, I'll hear her say the words, I want that, I need that, ooh, I like that, several times, if not over and over and over again. Sometimes about things that she had no idea what they even were before she saw this commercial, all of a sudden she realized, that's missing from my life, and I need that very quickly. Because advertisers, they know what we want. And they know what we want sometimes before we know what we want. And the root of that is they know on a base level what makes us happy. And I think I know what makes me happy. But sometimes I'm not sure if I really know what brings me joy. And so before we look at the rest of this, we need to draw the line between those two things, between happiness and joy, because especially in the Christian world, we get those things mixed up a lot. Happiness is something that is temporal. Happiness is something that can be brought to us in a moment, but it can also be taken away just as quickly as it comes. It's something rooted in our affections. It's something rooted in things that we can get or things that we can receive in people, in places, in occupations. All of that stuff can bring us happiness, but it can also disappear. Joy is something that's born from inside of us. Joy is something that comes even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Joy is something that can never be taken away or never be removed. And as Peter is writing to these people that are in this difficult circumstance, he's not unfamiliar with their circumstances. He knows very clearly what they're going through. But as he starts talking in this letter, he doesn't immediately jump into their circumstances. And that's probably what we would do. 
If I was writing a letter to you and you were in a really difficult circumstance or you were writing a letter to me when I was going through something really hard, we would probably start off by saying, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. I can't imagine what you're dealing with. I'm praying for you. I'll be there to do anything you want. We would jump right into the difficulty because that's what we recognize most quickly. But Peter doesn't start with their circumstances. He starts with their Savior. At the beginning of this letter, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ is the center. And it's according to his great mercy that he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that comes to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he says, In this you rejoice. At the very beginning of this letter, Peter jumps straight in to a concise and incredible picture of the gospel. That God is the center of all things and that through Christ, he has given us this great mercy. That through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that we have the ability to be born again, to be made new, to become something entirely different because of the work that Jesus has done. And not only does that change us here and now, but Jesus gives us an inheritance. And I love the words he uses that are, it's imperishable. It can't be taken away. It's undefiled. It's perfect. It's unfading. It won't ever dim. It won't ever lose its value. And that it's kept in heaven for us. That there's nothing that can take it away. That we can't mess it up. And that we have this salvation that's ready to be revealed to us. And Peter said it's that message, it's that truth, it's that hope that you can find cause to rejoice even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Last week we talked about love. And how part of the reason that we're called to be people who are marked and defined by love as Christians is because we are called to be eternal people. That we're supposed to look at things in the big picture, not simply at the temporary things that take place. And we saw Paul tell us that faith, hope, and love abide, but love is the greatest thing that we have. And he told us that love never passes away, that love never disappears, that love is eternal because God is love and God is eternal. And so as people who believe that we are living on an eternal plane, then we're called to cling on to those things that are eternal. And here now, this highlights the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness finds its roots in things that are perishable. Happiness finds its roots in things that can be taken away. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad, but they can always disappear. But joy finds its hope in Christ. Joy finds its hope in the gospel. It finds its hope in something that can never be removed, replaced, or reduced. And so when we talk about the difference between joy and happiness, joy is better. Joy is always better. And so why do we so often choose the substitute for the real thing? I think C.S. Lewis had a pretty good idea about it. He says, when talking about joy, he says, I call it joy, which here is a technical term and must be sharply distinguished from both happiness and pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with the others. The fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange all the pleasures of the world for joy. But then joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. 
When we were looking at Galatians 5, Paul drew this line between what he called the work of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And the first thing that we recognized in that passage is that the things that Paul calls the work of the flesh are all things that we can accomplish. They're all things that we can do out of our own power and our own might and our own strength. But the fruit of the Spirit is something that's planted inside of us. It's something that grows up within us that we don't have a lot of control over. And while that's good and we should recognize that as good, that can be really frustrating because we're people that like to take control. And we have a tendency, and we're prone to take the easier, more convenient, more self-reliant path because we feel like we're in control. We feel like we can take matters into our own hands, and we don't want to wait around for somebody else to lead us where we need to be if we can take a grab of it and lead ourselves there instead. But ultimately, that's just the flesh trying to convince us that comfortable captivity is better than freedom that sometimes feels inconvenient. But when we know the gospel, when we experience the joy that we have in Christ, it's incredibly difficult to let go of. It puts a clear vision of what all the other stuff really is. I love soft drinks. I'm getting better about soft drinks. So I think I'm down to about one or two a week, if even that. And that's only if I'm really sleepy or if I'm having a really bad day. That used to be more, it used to be more like one to two, we'll call it an hour, and I consumed a lot of soft drinks, and my weapon of choice for most of my life has been Mountain Dew. I love Mountain Dew. It's sweet, it's beautiful, it makes, oh, it's so good. Alan drinks Mellow Yellow, my dear sweet brother. Mellow Yellow is vile and putrid. It looks like Mountain Dew. They kind of copy the label for Mountain Dew. Mountain Dew is so much better. And Stephanie and I were at Alan and Becca's apartment a couple nights ago, and all they had to drink was Mellow Yellow. And it was late, and I really wanted a soft drink, so I drank it. And it was disgusting, as you would expect, because Mellow Yellow is disgusting, and time doesn't make that any different. And so because I know the goodness of Mountain Dew, I was able to recognize how just horridly disgusting that Mellow Yellow is. And so I think in reverse that what's happened with my dear sweet brother is that over time, he's just he's consumed this swill for so long that he's lost his taste for what is good. And if he would simply try Mountain Dew again, that he would recognize the beauty and the graciousness of that sweet nectar from the Lord. It's a little bit of what happens with joy, right? We get so used to happiness that once we taste that real joy, all of a sudden it puts everything in perspective and it reminds us how meaningless ultimately the things that we think make us happy are in comparison to joy. Because joy is always better. But to experience that joy, we have to first let go of what we think we want. We have to let go of who we think we are, of all the perishable things that we think are going to make us happy. And instead, we have to learn to trust the heart and the plan of a good God who loves us, who cares for us. The God who saves us and knows us better than we know ourselves. And here that God is telling us that what we need to find joy is something that's eternal, something that's good in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because all of the other stuff is going to fade away. All this other stuff is going to disappear. But even if Jesus is all we have, even if all the other stuff disappears, even if all the other stuff crumbles around us, even if our circumstances are overwhelmingly bad, if Jesus is all we have He's all we need to find joy. 
That's how Paul was able to say, I know what it's like to have a lot. I know what it's like to have nothing, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Because no matter what circumstance Paul found himself, he knew that it paled in comparison, whether it was good or bad, whether it was easy or hard, whether it was riches or poverty, he knew that Christ was better. And so joy is rooted in our knowledge of the gospel. Next, we see that joy is present in our pain. Joy is is present in our pain. Several hundred years ago, some religious refugees from Europe decided to come and to find a new place to start over. They were being persecuted for their faith. They were being persecuted for their religion. And so they wanted to go to a place where they could set up freedom for religion, not only for themselves, but for everyone else who comes. And over the next little while, a nation was built on that foundation that became a place who said, we have these inalienable rights. And it's written in the documents that defined our country that we have these inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I was reading this passage, I was prepping for this sermon and noticing the difference between Peter and the first century Christians and 21st century American Christians today. And so on one hand, you have Christians who are being persecuted, who are being oppressed, who are being ostracized, and are yet they're willing to find that joy in all circumstances. And then on the other hand, we live in a society today where Christians feel like they're broken and oppressed because someone says happy holidays to you in line at Walmart instead of Merry Christmas, and we cry about it for a week. So what's the difference? What is the difference between those first century Christians and how we live today? I think it might be comfort. I think as American Christians, for the most part, we're used to getting what we want. Because if something happens and we don't like it, then we have a voice. And no matter how ostracized you feel, you have an avenue in the American culture to be able to vote, to be able to speak out, to be able to protest, and to do all of that freely so that we can demand to get our way or at least try to pursue that happiness. And so maybe we've become distracted from joy because we're constantly pursuing after happiness because we have the freedom to do that. When Tim Keller describes and defines joy, he says that joy is delight in God and in his salvation for sheer beauty and worth of who he is. The opposite of joy is hopelessness and despair. And then he says the counterfeit of joy is elation or happiness that comes with the blessings, not the blesser. He says it results in mood swings based on circumstances. And we live in a society, and we are this way, and I imagine people have been this way all throughout history, that we want to use things that make us happy to distract us from the things that cause us pain. When we're hurting, when we're broken, when we're enduring circumstances, all that we can think about is how can I escape the situation? What can I do to make myself feel better? What can I do to get out of this thing that's causing me discomfort? But Peter confronts it head on. When Peter talks about that struggle, this is what he says in verses 6 and 7. He says, in the gospel you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter confronts 
something that happens in the Christian world. Because so many times people can take Christianity and you have teachers who will stand in front of congregations, sometimes of thousands. And they say, if you trust in Jesus, if you come to church, if you give enough money to the offering, if you do enough stuff, if you have enough faith, then you're never going to get sick. You're never going to hurt. You're never going to have brokenness in your life. You're never going to deal with any hard circumstances. And if you find yourself in those circumstances, then maybe you need to evaluate your faith because maybe you just don't believe enough because they teach people that there's no way a Christian who follows God should ever endure suffering. But that's not the New Testament picture of the gospel. That's not what Christianity looks like. We're not taught an escapist view of our circumstances, but we're taught to endure our circumstances through the gospel. Peter's solution to his audience here is not to escape their grief and trials, but to be able to find joy in the midst of those circumstances. That's a hard thing to do. And to truly be able to find joy in the midst of our suffering, we need a proper understanding of what suffering is. And Peter helps us figure that out. According to Peter, first and foremost, suffering is overshadowed by the gospel. It's overshadowed by the goodness of the gospel because he lays all that out in verses 3 through 6. And he says, this is the beauty of the gospel and how incredible it is. And in this you rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by trials of various kinds. You have these circumstances, you have these struggles, you have this suffering, but the gospel is bigger. The gospel is better. And so no matter what you're going through, you can find a reason to rejoice in Christ and in Christ alone. Because no matter what our circumstances are, they will always be overshadowed by the goodness of the gospel. But Peter also tells us that our suffering, that our trials, that our tribulations, that these things are painful. Because on another side, as Christians, what we can do is we can look at our hardships. We can look at our sufferings. We can look at our difficulties. And we can say, you know what? There are people that have it way worse than me. There are people who deal with so much more than me, and so I just need to learn to man up or woman up and deal with this kind of stuff because I'm a Christian, and I shouldn't let this stuff affect me, and I shouldn't let this stuff bother me, and so I'm just going to muscle through it and walk it off and just live my life. But God knows that when you deal with trials and circumstances that it hurts. Peter is very aware here because he says, though for a little while you have been grieved by these trials, that these are things that hurt you. These are things that break your heart. These are things that cause pain and anxiety and difficulty in your life. And God doesn't gloss over that. And so neither should we. We need to recognize that when we go through difficult times, that it's okay to be hurt. That it's okay to feel the pain, that it's okay to admit that we are vulnerable and weak and that we're suffering and that we not only have a God who loves us and cares for us, but he's given us a place in the church where we should be able to come with that kind of vulnerability and tell our brothers and sisters in Christ that we're hurting and that they will love us and care for us and pick us up when we're down because these situations hurt. It doesn't matter if your pain seems like it should be less than the person beside you. It still hurts because you're experiencing it. He also tells us that suffering is beneficial. That, yeah, it hurts, but there's something behind it. In verse 7, he says, you deal with these things so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That we go through these things like gold through fire. 
that it refines us, that it purifies, that it shapes us into who we're designed to be, that it allows us to walk through the wilderness with Christ who suffered in the same ways that we have so that we can become more and more like Christ, that these things aren't wasted, that these things aren't empty in your life, but God does truly work things to the good of those who love him, and he uses our hardships and our circumstances to shape us into who we're designed to be. Peter also says suffering will only last a little while. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And sometimes that feels right. Sometimes that language feels appropriate. Because sometimes you wake up and you have a bad day. Sometimes you have a bad week where it just seems like everything's not going well. Sometimes you have a bad year, but at least you can look at, we've got New Year coming. So if 2016 was not a great year for you and you've posted videos on Facebook of someone falling down the stairs and equated that to your past year, you can say, well, at least 2017 is coming and maybe that's something better. But sometimes it's not just a bad day. Sometimes it's not just a bad week or a bad year. Sometimes it's a bad decade. Sometimes people suffer with difficulties that last almost their entire lives. Sometimes our difficulties and our trials kill us. And so how could Peter possibly say, though, it's just for a little while? Well, Peter is looking at things the way that we're supposed to. Peter remembers that we're not here for the temporary, that the 78 plus lives, give or take, that we, years that we might have in this life, that's not the end of it because we believe that we have a God who is eternal and that he saves us to this inheritance that's imperishable and that will never pass away. And so if we look at our circumstances, even if it's 70, 80 years of our lives of difficulty, if we look at that in comparison to eternity, it's not so big anymore. A swimming pool can feel huge until you dump it into the ocean. And that's what happens when we look at things from an eternal perspective, that yes, it hurts, and yes, it's difficult, and yes, sometimes it can feel like that's just an all-consuming part of our lives. But when we look at it in comparison to the eternity that we have in Christ, it's a drop of water in an immense ocean of God's grace. And so it really is just a little while. And he writes that so that the people suffering through this will be able to endure with that gospel hope. And then he tells us that suffering will end in praise and glory. That be it a day, a week, a year, or a lifetime, that one day that suffering will end. And on the other side of that suffering is something more beautiful and powerful than we could ever imagine. It's our hope revealed to us in Christ. And he says that it's going to end in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's this view of trials. It's this view of hardships. It's this view of circumstances in light of the goodness of God that helps us to find joy. I think Sam Storms summarizes this well by saying joy is not necessarily the absence of suffering, but it's the presence of God. God, who reveals himself to us as as Trinity, as three in one, reminds us in the nature and the character of who he is, how he cares for us in our suffering, because we see God as a good father who loves his children with an immeasurable love. We see Jesus as an empathetic high priest who has been tempted and tried and suffered in every way that we could, that he's not unfamiliar with our hardships, but he's walked through this for us and with us. And we have the Holy Spirit that's a counselor and a comforter to those who are in need. And so even when it hurts, even when it seems like there's no good to be found, God is good. 
And God is with you and he's working all things to your good and he's never wasting a moment and he's never wasting a tear. You may be encountering trials now, but they'll only last a little while compared to the eternity that we're promised in Christ. And know that you don't walk through these things alone, but God walks through these trials with you and all the while conforming you to his image and preparing you for praise and glory and honor. And in that truth, we can find joy because joy is present in our pain. And then finally, joy is evidence of our hope. Joy is evidence of our hope. After his resurrection, the disciples all reacted in different ways to Christ. And the one who we seem to single out the most is Thomas, who we call Doubting Thomas. Because he couldn't wrap his mind around it. He couldn't believe it unless he were to see Jesus and touch his hands and his feet. And then finally he does. And of course the reaction of Thomas is no longer doubt. But he says, my Lord and my God. And he trusted in the resurrection of Christ. And Jesus said, do you believe because you see? Blessed are those who believe and do not see. I've been I say this a lot, but faith is difficult for me. I'm a doubter by trade. I'm a doubter by nature. But faith is really difficult for all of us at some point in time. No matter whether faith comes difficultly or faith comes easily to you, there are going to be times and there are going to be circumstances in your life when faith is hard and when faith is exhausting. But faith is always a gift. And it's a gift that brings with it joy. And we're the people that Jesus was telling Thomas about. When Jesus says, blessed are those who believe and haven't seen, he's talking about us. He's talking about the people that haven't looked at him and still believe. And we're blessed in that faith that we have in Jesus. And Peter reiterates that in verse 8, saying, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Remember last week, we talked about how Christianity is a faith. It's a religion that is based on and born out of love. The love that God has for us that he gives us so that we can love him in return. And so Peter says our call is to love Jesus. And then out of that love is born a belief in Christ. Even though we don't see him now, we can cling to that belief. And when that love is mixed with that belief, the result is rejoicing. And he says we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. Something so deep and something so guttural that we can't possibly put it into words. And it's filled with glory. And why is it that kind of joy? Because even though we don't see it now, we believe that we have a hope in Jesus that's more beautiful than our wildest imaginations. We don't see the end very well. Most of the time we look at Christianity as something that gives us some sort of get into heaven card. And so we just live these miserable lives and then we die. And we hope we have some sort of ethereal cloud land thing that we can go be angels in and not have the pain anymore. But it's so much better than that. It's so much more beautiful than that because we're promised this hope that Christ makes all things right and all things new from the spirit to the body. That he puts us back together and that that's something that starts with our salvation. It starts now that Christ is making us new right at this very moment. And so that's cause for joy. Every Sunday that we come together is Easter Sunday. 
We have the one day on the, on the calendar that reminds us that we do the celebration of the resurrection. But the reason why we worship on Sunday mornings is because it was a Sunday morning that Christ rose from the dead. And so every time we come together, we do so to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and the hope we have. But so often churches are filled with people who look more like they're at a funeral of Christians who act like angsty beat poets or some sort of shocked victims. And it's because we don't really at the core believe the gospel all the time. This is why we try to manufacture emotions in churches. This is why we try to create these aesthetics in our churches with lights and drums and all this kind of stuff that helps us to move it along. And so maybe we can feign happiness for a little while if the joy isn't really there. But when we look at 1 Peter, when we look at Acts 1-8, that Jesus says that we'll be his disciples, that we'll be his evangelists all over the world to share the gospel to the ends of the earth, and that he'll be with us always, even to the end of the age. When we look at Revelation 21 and 22, and we see that God one day is going to put all things to rights and take away all the things that break our hearts and wipe away our tears and sickness and shame and death, and all of those things will be put to end. When we read Isaiah and he talks about a future that we have in Christ where there's no more learning of war, that there's no more violence, that there's no more hatred, that that the lion will lay down with a wolf and that all the predators will cease to be angry and aggressive and that we'll live in this perfect peace in Christ. That's something that should bring us joy. It's life-giving, God-honoring, joy-bringing news and we should act like it. But this isn't a call to some sort of fake-it-till-you-make-it Stepford Christianity where we just try to smile and pretend like nothing's wrong, or we act like we're happy, or we jump up and down, or some sort of weird outward expression of something. It's not that kind of call. The call to joy is the ability to weep in pain, but still be comforted by the joy that comes in Christ. To be able to love Christ in all things, because we have a hope beyond our sorrow. Because we have a promise beyond all of even the good things that can take place in our lives. Joy doesn't always stop the pain. Joy doesn't always change our circumstances, but the pain and the circumstances cannot stop the joy that comes in Christ. And so we need to be people who are not only marked by love, but who are marked by inexpressible joy. There should be a difference between the way that we see the world and the way that anybody else does because we have this hope and this promise. And that should be something that radiates from us. It should be contagious. And again, it doesn't mean you smile all the time. It doesn't mean you jump up and down all the time. But even in the midst of your pain and suffering, there's There should be something that points to the good news of Christ in our lives. If you're in Christ, then you're on the way to obtaining the outcome of your faith, salvation. And we have a hope for eternity in Jesus. And so we have the calling to rejoice in that always and to not let anything steal that knowledge away from us because nothing can take that reality away. And that is cause to be joyful. As Paul tells us that if you put your faith in Christ, that you are free. You're free from the law. You're free from sin. You're free to be who God has called you to be, which means that you are free to rejoice. You're free to have joy in all circumstances, and no trial or no hardship can ever take that away from you. And it starts with believing the gospel. And if you're here this morning, you've never put your faith in Christ or been through the waters of baptism, then you've heard the gospel 
You've heard what we call the good news, that God was so rich in love and mercy for us that he gave Christ into the world and that Jesus died a humiliating death. He suffered on our behalf and then rose from the dead so that anyone who puts their faith and trust in him and repents of their sins, we're told that we are new creations, that the old is past and the new has come and that we get this inheritance in Christ that will never pass away. Something that, as again Peter says, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that it's nothing that you can earn, it's nothing that can be taken away because it's a gift given by God. And so if you're in that place and you want to talk about what it means to follow Christ in salvation, then please come and talk with me after the sermon. If you trust in Christ, then you have no less a call to believe the gospel. That promise that Paul or that Peter reminds us of is not something that just happens in the rearview mirror, that we are saved one day and then we never have to worry about it again. But the call to gospel belief is a daily thing. We're daily called to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died and rose from the dead and gave us this inheritance that's imperishable and will never pass away, and that he is protecting that salvation for us through faith. That's something that we should think about as soon as we wake up in the morning and something that should drive us to joy. We have the calling to rely on the presence and the plan of God, even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of difficult circumstances in our life. And we have to cling to the hope that we have in Jesus. The world is full of things that can make us happy. The world's full of things that can break our hearts. But only Jesus can bring us joy. Joy. 